0: You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. I'm going to tell someone the title of uh, my sermon this morning, Living for Fruit. Living for Fruit. We are at the conclusion of our sort of mini-series, our vision-casting series called The Plentiful Harvest. Uh, in this vision-casting series, as we all normally do in vision-casting series, is we review and we recall to mind the vision of our church to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, as well as our mission as a church to reach, revolve, and reflect. The past few weeks, we've been looking at these mission statements and seeing how we can grow fruit better produce fruit in these Things And so, for example, we talked about in our reach, in our mission to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we talked about the best way to do that is discipleship, to to practice discipleship. And in Reflect, last week we talked about reflecting Christ's love and where that starts is by the renewal of our mind because we cannot reflect the love of Christ if we are reflecting the love of the world. It must be different. It must be be the kind of love that Christ demonstrates to us. Now, if you recall, where this theme of a plentiful harvest comes from is from Jesus' own words in the Gospel of Matthew when he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Our goal and our and our desire from this entire series is again to equip our church, to enable our church to be those laborers that Jesus is uh, talking about. So that we would be part of, uh, of that group of, of, of God's people who actually go out into the harvest, actually go out and 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 reap the fruit of, of salvation, of the kingdom of God, and that in our own spiritual walk, in our own lives, we would produce. Uh, more fruit, effective fruit. And so now as we get to the final mission of our church, to revolve, uh, what does that mean? Just as a reminder, as as stated by our church, we preach and teach the Word of God boldly and have it shape the life and nature of Plus Life to be a God-honoring, Christ-exalting, Spirit-leading, and people-loving community. Our ministries adhere to a gospel-centered philosophy and as a local body, we pursue to see all of life through a God-centered and a God-glorifying worldview. That is what we mean by revolve. We desire to cultivate lives and ministry that revolve around Jesus Christ and the Word of God. That impacts our worldview and how we perceive and and approach the world and respond to the things that are happening around us. And so that first part of that mission statement, we're talking about the Word of God and preaching it boldly and teaching it with a a Christ-centered worldview. We're going to be talking about that in the workshop after church. So again, there is a workshop after church where we're going to study, we're going to look at how to study the bible and some suggest some practical steps some fruitful steps on how to do that. So be ready for that, be excited for that. I hope you can stay around for that. Uh, and again, there will be food. But don't come for the food. Come for the spiritual food, right? The word of God. So our purpose for us this morning, however, in in the sermon is to, to discuss that second part of that mission statement. How do we cultivate these lives that revolve around Christ? That is gospel centered, that is Christ centered and Uh, and have a worldview that is consistent with Scripture and and, and the will and the purposes of God. Just again, as we have sung, not our will, but the will of God. Not that that isn't happening in our church, by the way. I I do believe it is happening in our community. But as we know, our walk walk with God in this world, in this fallen world, can oftentimes be inconsistent. Sometimes we can be wishy-washy with our faith. Especially when things are going well, there's no problems, there's no issues. Our tendency is to sort of to, to, to drift further away from a Christ-centered lifestyle. Maybe we become complacent in the, the will of God for our lives. Then, when trouble appears, when, when, when circumstances and hardships come our way, it's like, okay, now we got to go back to God. we got to cling closer to God. And sometimes it even happens the opposite way, too. When hardships come, we run further away from God. Or, and and when, when, when things are okay, then that's when we think, okay, now I can go and, and, and work on my spiritual life. But to have lives that revolve around Christ is, is the idea of having a life that is consistently orbiting around Christ. So much how the moon revolves around the earth and the earth revolves around the sun, there's a consistency, it doesn't ever waver. And, and, and there's a consistency regardless of what season you find yourselves in. That's what we're talking about here. When we're talking about cultivating lives that, that revolve around Christ, that He's leading our lives, that He is governing our decisions, that the Spirit is helping us with, with our plans and our futures, our, our goals in this life. That we see everything that we're, we're where we're, we're encountering in the world, whether it's on the news, or on social media, through a, a, a biblical lens, a biblical worldview. So our hope this morning is that, that, this, the, the, that the kind of fruit that we produce when we, when we say that we revolve in Christ, that we want to revolve around Christ, is that in every aspect of our life, whether we're here at church or we're outside of church, that we are producing fruit. That we are faithful followers of Christ, regardless of what season or circumstance that we find ourselves in. So then, how do we do that? How do we cultivate this, this, this Christ-centered life? How do we cultivate lives that revolve around Christ? Well, to answer this question, we're looking to Paul's letter to Timothy. Some context here. Second Timothy is the last epistle of Paul. It's his last prison letter, actually, the last letter he writes to, to anyone from prison. And in this letter, he's giving sort of his final encouragements to his disciple, Timothy, his protege. Timi- Timothy, if you recall from the book of Acts, uh, from a young age, Paul takes up Timothy as his disciple. Timothy travels with Paul, he disciples him, and then as a result, where Timothy is at right now, where Paul is writing to Timothy, he- Timothy is actually the pastor of the church of Ephesus at this point. And so Paul, knowing that his time is up, he gives this final exhortation to Timothy on how to be a faithful follower and minister of Christ. What we see in Paul's exhortation in in, in this passage that we just looked at a few minutes ago is that he gives three metaphors. Three metaphors that, according to Paul, perfectly describe the Christian life. Perfectly describe how how we are to conduct ourselves as believers and how to remain faithful followers of Jesus Christ in in this world. The three metaphors that that we saw in our passage, and we'll go through it again, in in verse uh, 3 and 4 is a soldier, in verse 5 an athlete, and in verse 6 a farmer. By using these sort of archetypes, Paul paints this holistic picture of how believers, how followers of Christ ought to live and conduct themselves in a fallen world, in a world that seeks their attention and allegiance. And we are to resemble the similar characteristics of these three, three archetypes if we want to see fruit in our, in, in our Christ-centered life. So what are these characteristics, and what what are they demonstrating, uh, these archetypes? Let's look at our passages, passages, unpack it for us. Look at verse 1 with me again. Uh, it says again, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trusted faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in, oh, we'll just, just pause there a minute. What I, What I love before we move on there is that, This is a great example of discipleship, by the way, right? Uh, Paul is saying to Timothy, just as I have poured into you, just as I have discipled you, disciple faithful men as well so that you can pass on the things that I have passed on to you. Pass on what I have taught you. Then in verse 3 to 4, we get the first metaphor here, right? Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So if we want to cultivate lives that are centered on Christ, the first metaphor that we get from Paul is to live like a soldier. Everyone say, live like a soldier. Paul calls Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This is, this, is the, this, is the, the, this is important, this verse 3 is the, sort of the premise of what he's trying to get at with this metaphor, a soldier sharing in suffering. So what kind of suffering is the expectation here? What kind of suffering is he implying here in this verse? Well, fun fact, I, I never knew this, but as I was studying uh, our passage and sort of just some historical backgrounds, context here, did you know that in, in Rome, Roman soldiers in the 1st and 2nd century, during the time of the New Testament, during the time of Paul and Timothy, Roman soldiers were prohibited from marrying. Because it was the mindset that these soldiers had to remain focused and disciplined in order to serve the empire, in order to serve Rome. And it was only after they were discharged as soldiers could they take up civilian pursuits, take up uh, marriage or have kids, whatever it was. Now, why do I bring this up? Because, again, Paul says in verse 4, no soldiers get entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Paul talks about, in 1 Corinthians, there is a parallel passage where Paul mentions a similar mindset here when he's promoting the idea of celibacy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32, it says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided, and the unmarried is betrothed, or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband so paul is, so, so so what we 're gathering here is that the similar discipline and sort of selflessness that soldiers demonstrated, at least back in, in the Roman Empire, that believers are to demonstrate a similar discipline. Is he saying here, by the way, that everybody should be celibate, that no one should uh, get married and whatnot? Obviously not, right? That's not, I don't, I don't believe that's what, what Paul is trying to say to Timothy, but what he is getting at is that. The Believers in Christ, who are like soldiers in Christ, need to have an undivided focus on Christ. That, that suffering, again, that, that he talks about in verse 3, is in the context of a soldier that doesn't, uh, that, that, that it doesn't simply mean that, he doesn't, that suffering is coming from a place of not being married or not having any attachments in this world. But it simply means that the soldier is, is completely focused and in the practice of self-denial. In order just to to live and please the master, in order to live for the king. A soldier's celibacy was a symbol of their complete denial of self. Denial of their name, meaning the the legacy that they would leave behind. Denial of any wealth, any any family to to distribute their, their, their income to. Denial of any worldly attachments, including relationships. All for, this, all for the sake of this undivided service and focus and dedication to their king, to the emperor. And again, the same way, Paul is calling believers, calling Timothy to a same focus, to the same selflessness. In Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 14, it says, "For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this." That one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. Paul's push in this idea of suffer like a soldier, uh, he's pushing this idea of self-denial in order that you might live not for yourself, but for Christ. Not live for yourself, but live for the one who has enlisted you into the family of God. No longer living for ourselves, but for him who died. Now, I think it's very important here as well. In verse 4, Paul says that we are not to be entangled in civilian pursuits. What does this mean? Does it it mean that, you know, I'm going to follow Christ, I'm going to leave everything else behind and... I'm just going to do the work of the Lord? Is that what Paul means here? No. It does not mean that in in our pursuit of a Christ-centered life that we deny the basic necessities of our family, our responsibilities to our workplaces. We quit our jobs, go and do other things for the Lord. That's not what it means. Because the the reality is it's in those spheres, in our family, in our workplaces, in our school, that we are called to be the soldiers of Christ, to be a good soldier in Christ, to serve God within those responsibilities. See, I think it's important to understand that that the Bible does not prescribe a duality in the Christian life. Meaning, the Bible doesn't compartmentalize what is sacred to the believer and what is secular to the believer, or what is spiritual and what is material, what is godly and what is earthly. The expectation is that being a good soldier of Christ means that every aspect of our lives, whether it's our workplaces, our schools, our families, is incorporated in our spiritual walk, that our, 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 our allegiance to Christ is, also governs how we interact and view all these other spheres of life. Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, all, do it all for the glory of God. There's no division, right? Right? You're not just a Christian when you're here in the church. You're also a Christian when you're outside, when you're in the workplace. So every sphere of of a believer's life is meant to be subjected to the authority of God and pursued for his glory. So what what does Paul mean then when he says, don't be entangled in civilian pursuits? Simply that there are things in this world that can distract us, distract soldiers, things that normal civilians are entangled with that we shouldn't be. For example, I don't think many soldiers fighting out there right now are too worried about what's going to happen in the next season of Love is Blind, right? Or or I don't think soldiers out there are too worried about the, the, the specs on the new iPhone or who's leading in the NBA. There are civilian pursuits, things that, The world pursues that we should not be entangled with. Entangled in the original Greek, empleko, meaning to weave or to be so involved in. The idea of us being so entrenched, so entangled, so obsessed even in some earthly things that it takes precedence over our duty and our responsibility to the kingdom of God. And that could be our work, that could be the shows that we watch. That could be our status, our position, our money, anything that takes our focus away from our duty and responsibility to the kingdom of God. Not that we can't enjoy these earthly things, not that we can't enjoy the things that we have in this world, the things that are not inherently or explicitly or implicitly sinful, but when these civilian things become priority in our lives, when they become our Priority, they often become our obsession, and obsessions are often idols. That's when we lose focus. That's when it becomes sin. So, some application here, just some questions to ask ourselves this morning. Examine the priorities in your life. Examine the priority, the things that you take that takes precedence in your life. Do they follow the will of God? Do they bring glory to God? Your priorities are your priorities in line with the will of God for your life. And if you're thinking, "Well, I don't, I don't know my priorities," well, think about where you invest your time, talents, and treasures. In. What are the things that you invest your time in? That you spend most hours of the day on? Or your talents, your, your your skills, your gifts in? Even your resources, your treasures. Think about this. What are the things that excite you in this life? Do those things that excite you bring glory to God? The things that you're passionate about? How about this? Where do you find purpose in this life? Is your purpose in this life self-determined? You decide what it is that you are going to pursue, or is it in line with God's Word? Is it in line with the, the Spirit's leading for your life? The decisions that you are making for your family, for yourself, is it? Does it? Does it have the scope of what honors God and what glory, brings glory to God the most? Again, every aspect of our life, every sphere of our life, needs to be in, in under subjection to the authority of God in order to bring Him glory. Again, remember why it is that you were saved, why you were enlisted into the family of God. He died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake, for our sake. Live like a soldier. Live like a soldier. The second metaphor that we see here is in verse 5. Look at that with me. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. If we want to cultivate lives that are centered around Christ, we must live like an athlete. Live like an athlete. I want say live like an athlete, just to make sure that you're awake. No one's awake. All right. Let's uh, pack up stuff here. Paul's metaphor would have, would have invoked to mine the Olympic Games, because the Olympics were, the ancient Olympics were happening during this time as well. And, of course, other such games in those days where where the winner of of an event would be crowned with a laurel, those green wreaths around their head. But like any modern sports or even, again, ancient sports, only those who follow or competed by the rules of the game would be rewarded that crown. That's what he's invoking with this verse. In fact, we even see some of the consequences of that uh, even in, in sort of modern day sports, if you remember a man named Lance Armstrong, right, he was on top of the world in terms of the, of the, of the cycling world back in, uh, back in the day, and, and he won many accolades and medals, but after admitting to using these sort of performance enhancing drugs, he had all his medals stripped from him, taken away. So Paul's emphasis here in this metaphor is to note how regardless of how trained, regardless of how physically fit, regardless of how disciplined an athlete is, there is no reward distributed to anyone who, who does not abide by the rules. What, does, what, what rules is Paul talking about here? What is, what is, he, he, what is he getting at here? Well, Paul is, is no, no stranger to sports analogies. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, To abide by the rules as Paul is talking about in our main passage simply means to live in a way that abides by the standards of righteousness and holiness and godliness that believers are called to live by. To be above reproach, to, to, be, to, to live in a way that would not disqualify us, despite us having served on the weekends, despite us having shared the gospel to the lost, despite us having uh, being in charge of ministries and being involved in other believers' life. What ultimately disqualifies us is if, in our, if our private life does not match our public life. Integrity. What ultimately disqualifies us is if if in public we are this great Christian guy or sister and, and we're doing everything that we're called to do. But then in the private, we are stumbling, we are sinning, we are compromising. We're not living by the standards of righteousness that every believer is called to live by. And listen... We all know all too well of many pastors and leaders of believers who served in the church and did great things for the kingdom and expanded uh, churches and only to be caught in sin, in in inappropriate relationships and found guilty of, of greed and the love of money. Believers who, despite having run the race well, did not follow the rules well not live by the standards of God. This is why Paul says in, 1 in that 1 Corinthians passage, in verse 7 again, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Like, like any athlete knows or any health nut knows, you know, discipline is necessary, but even more so is self-control. To these two words, these two terms are closely related, but slightly differ, at least in the original Greek. Hence why Paul says, I, dis- I discipline my body and keep it under control. Discipline in the, in the original Greek denotes this idea of continually beating, continually hammering down in order to have something comply to an action or standard. Self-control, on the other hand, refers to exercising dominion from within, self-governance, internal resolve. Discipline is external, self-control is internal, and rightly so because self-control, as we know, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of someone who is being sanctified and changed by God. Again, Paul's metaphor in our main passage is, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Self-control is what governs our ability to remain faithful, to run the race, to to follow the rules. Self-control is is what keeps us away from being swayed by temptation and sin. Listen, we live in a world that lacks self-control. A society of excess, of extravagance. Live the way you want, when you want, have as much as you want, say what you want. We live in a world that invented all-you-can-eat buffet, right? Be what you want. As a result, lots of people lack the ability to self-govern, to regulate for self-control, whether it's, again, binge-watching shows or overspending or the inability to control fleshly urges. People lack self control because we live in a fallen world that enables these tendencies, these inclinations of excess. Hence, why, again, self control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is unnatural, it is supernaturally uh, given. Understand how much trouble we would save ourselves if we practice self control, right? Anyone married here? Amen, praise the Lord. How many arguments would we, save, would we save ourselves from if we would just practice self-control from not saying something that we shouldn't say, right, husbands? And wives. Why do we get into so much debt? Because from overspending, because we lack self-control. Why do we lash out uncontrollably when we're driving down the 401? In Blind rage because a lack of self-control. Why, you know, and this is a problem for me, you know, why, why, do, why do we overeat and get fat? It's not because of Leviticus chapter 3 verse 16 where all the fat belongs to the Lord, that's not it. Lack of self-control. We would save ourselves a lot of heartache and stumbling if we practice more self-control. I love this proverb. It always comes to mind whenever we talk on this, um, on this topic of self-control. Proverbs 25, verse 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I love this picture, this imagery. And I find, this, I find it to be so true because oftentimes when we exhibit a lack of self-control in one aspect of life, it translates over to another aspect of life. It translates over to a lack of self-control in other aspects of life. So if you show a lack of restraint in your finances, chances are you'll show a lack of restraint in your pursuits of purity, for example. If you show a lack of self-control in your words, chances are you'll show a lack of... Self-control when it comes to anger. As, a proverb go, as this proverb goes, self-control is like the walls to a city that keeps invaders out, but once one wall falls, once one wall is breached, the rest of the walls follow. So some practical application here. Practice self-control and discipline. Again, like an athlete. Start with the little things. Start with the little things like time. Stay disciplined in your, in your, in your devotional time. Stay disciplined in, your, in, your, in, your, in, in the time you're spending in God's word, you're spending in prayer. Wake up early if you need to wake up early. Listen, if you can wake up early to go to work and be on time, you can wake up for the, early for the Lord whether that's in your devotional life or in church, right? should be able to wake up early just to, to be disciplined in that. Practice holding your tongue. Again, we save, save, save a lot of trouble from arguments and, and fights if we could just hold our tongue, not talk back, not have to always have an answer, not, not always have to prove that we're right. Practice, avoid, practice avoiding places or sites or shows that you know you'll be tempted in or you'll be triggered by. It's like oftentimes we think, oh, I'm going I'm to practice self-control by watching these shows or putting ourselves into these circumstances. No, self-control happens outside of those circumstances in, the, in avoiding those things. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 13, and says, For the grace of God has appeared to bring salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The call is for us to train like athletes, to train ourselves in self-control, in discipline, so that we would ourselves would not be disqualified at the end of the day. Like those who train like athletes, like those who continually keep their minds and bodies in check. Discipline. Those who practice self-control, who abide by the rules. That's what we are called to do. Live like athletes. Lastly, the final metaphor that we see here, verse 6 It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. We want to cultivate lives that are centered on Christ. We must live like a farmer. Everyone say, live like a farmer. No, this is not a sign for all of us to move to Calgary and start living on farms and communities. Although, another sermon... um, Paul's emphasis here is pretty clear. We're called to be like the hard-working farmer who labors despite the season, despite the condition of the ground, despite circumstances in order to produce fruit for the harvest. But the metaphor goes beyond a great work ethic, though that is important for a believer's life as well. We are to have a great work ethic for the kingdom. It speaks in greater depth of of the the patient endurance that farmers often have awaiting for their yield, for their fields to grow. Those who labor despite hardship and toil, awaiting a great harvest. Those who persevere through seasons where no fruit is visible, no evidence that their, their toil, their work has amounted to anything. Yet they still endure. They still persevere. Like farmers, we ought to persevere, endure in patience. Remember the context of this entire letter to Timothy. This is Paul's letter to, the the final letter that Paul makes to Timothy or to anyone else in the church from prison, at least that, that we know of. Paul had run the race. He had sown the seeds of the gospel, he had planted churches, he had edified believers, he has endured hardships, persevered through persecutions, he's gone through tribulations, he has been shipwrecked, he has been beaten, rejected, stoned. Now he's in prison, awaiting to be beheaded in Rome, awaiting for his, patiently awaiting for his eternal reward. Paul not only worked for the kingdom, but he also persevered and endured to the end. And these agricultural metaphors, is nothing new to Paul. He's used them before. Galatians chapter 6, verse 8 to 9. He says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, but we do not give up. Again, a call to perseverance, a call to endurance. Listen, the believer's life is is not going to be easy. There's hardships, there's trials, there's tribulations, there's persecutions. You will be rejected by the world, be hated by the world. And for some of us in this room, maybe to the degree that Paul was, others maybe not. But the Christian life, this, a life that is centered upon Christ, was never meant to be easy. Right from the beginning, Christ's invitation for all his followers is to take up your cross and follow me. A cross that denotes suffering. A cross that denotes hardship and trials. And when the, the hardships of this life and the trials of following Christ weigh upon us, when the labor becomes too painful, when, when the work becomes too unbearable, too wearisome, we are still called to endure, called to persevere. But our great hope, our great joy in, in that perseverance, in that endurance, is that the same Savior who calls us to carry our cross also says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. That's why Paul says, despite his hardships in 2 Corinthians, he says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, that I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Because it is in those hardships, it is in those trials that we experience in life, that's when we see the power of God at work in our lives. The evidence of His grace in our lives. We can remain, uh, we, can, we can persevere, we can endure, and remain faithful to the call, not because of anything in us that enables us to stand the test. That enables us to, to stand the trial, but because our Savior is faithful and He endures with us, He perseveres with us. So, listen, brothers and sisters, you might be going through a season of hardships right now, seasons of trials, seasons of difficulty. But listen, Now is not the time to shrink back in fear, to waver in faith. Now is the time to cling closer to the Savior. He is faithful. He is true. He will help you stand and persevere. He will help you endure. The same Savior who calls you to your cross is the same Savior who will help you carry your cross. Depend on Him. Rely on Him. As Paul mentions in our passage, we are to live like a farmer, one who patiently endures, despite not seeing the fruit of their work. But our hope is that ultimately, it is a Savior who brings about fruit in our lives, in our ministries, in our families. That's our greatest hope. Paul concludes our our passage this morning. He says, In verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. But listen to this, and I love this part. But the word of God is not bound. I love that. The word of God is not bound. We'll talk more about this in our workshop. In our workshop, just in a few minutes here. So, as we close to the loss, I want to invite you to center your life on Christ. There's so much things happening in the world right now. So much chaos and turmoil. So much discouragement. That things are changing by the second, by the minute. And if you're looking for a firm foundation in anything else in the world apart from Jesus Christ, you will be lost in the wind, in the the, the storm of what's happening out there. Center your life on Christ. He's the only sure foundation, the only tested, tried and true hope that we as human beings have in this life. Put your faith in Him. Put your trust in Him. Not just in this world. Not for things in this world. But also for eternity. The next life. That is our great security and our hope in Jesus. Put your faith and trust in Him. For salvation. For the forgiveness of sins. Because as we've mentioned, really, a lot of the stuff that... All the hardships and the things that are happening out in the world, even the result of a fallen world, a sinful world. But God came as Jesus Christ to reconcile all of that to himself, to give forgiveness to the sinner. We could have hope in him. Center your life on Christ. To the found, to brothers and sisters, I again exhort you to live like a soldier To live a life that is focused, that is committed to the cause of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Practice self denial. Live like an athlete. Practice self control. Discipline yourselves. Remain faithful to the standards of God. And live like a farmer. Persevere. Endure. Put your hope. And the Savior who helps us persevere and endure. Let's pray. Father, as we as we confess, O oh God, where we have fallen short. as your Holy Spirit moves in conviction in our hearts I pray that you would highlight in our minds where we have strayed where our lives have stopped revolving around you where we have prioritized the things of this world the things of the flesh our own desires our own will over yours and I pray God that you'd bring about conviction that we might truly repent oh God turn from those mentalities, turn from those desires turn from those lifestyles I pray that we would put you first God I pray that we would be a church that is known for putting you first is wholly committed to your kingdom, to your will, to your work, to your word. God, we are so prone to wander. Oftentimes we do. I pray, oh God, that, Lord, by your grace and your mercy, you'd help us find our way back to you. be faithful to you just as you are faithful to us to persevere with you just as you have persevered with us Lord help us help us to be a church that is Christ centered that is situated upon your truths that is situated upon your gospel and every aspect of our lives would proclaim your glory. And I pray for the brother or the sister who wavers, who compromises, who battles with sin, that God, you'd bring about freedom in Jesus' name. That their entire life, including their bodies, would be offered up to you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable in your sight. Oh God, for the unbeliever in our midst, Lord, that you'd bring about real conviction, real faith in their hearts, that you, God, Holy Spirit, you would regenerate their hearts in this time, that you would open their hearts to faith in you, to repentance, to truly put their lives in your hands, to have you at the center of it all. God, we surrender ourselves to you. We thank you for the, ti- the, the time that we've had in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.